When does the Lord's ransom apply to a Christian? Have you ever thought about that? When does the blood of Christ apply to your ransom? When you believe in the Savior. When you believe in the Savior, you're credited with the righteousness of Christ. You've been redeemed. And, and, and the life you live between here and the day when the Lord comes is what it means to, to stand in grace. Grace is what unites you by faith to Christ. And so the life we live while we tarry is, is, how, we, is how we live and tarry by faith. And this is the subject of uh, Romans 6 and 7. Theological word here is sanctification, the doctrine of sanctification, the teaching of um, the word sanctify means holy, and holy means set apart. When you put your faith in Christ, you are set apart to Christ. You're called sons and daughters. You're made a son or a, a daughter by faith. You're redeemed by the blood of Christ, by that faith which unites you to Christ. Romans 7 Verses 1 to 6 is where we've been at. This is the third message in the same text we've had here. The closing lines of the, of the last chapter were on the same subject as well. Look at uh, verse 22, for example, chapter 6. Having been set free from sin, having become slaves... Of God, you have fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. A Christian is called a workman as well. You died with Christ and raised a workman, a worker. The word, the word slave, and the word servant here that we've been reading in English comes from the same word in in the Greek New Testament. Servants and slaves have been raised after having died in their service to, to sin. Romans 7 isn't a different subject. Romans 7 is this subject of sanctification. Romans 7 is, is what does it mean to be a Christian? How do you walk and, and live and do your Christian faith? And Romans 7 actually borrows an illustration from marriage. I think this illustration is a little rough on you and me. This illustration is meant to portray your relationship to the law. And in a couple minutes, I'm going to I'm going to show you while your experience to the law is not the Jews' experience to the law, it's totally different. But Romans here has taught us that we actually have a very similar experience to the law, but totally different from the Jew. When you died with Christ, of what your baptism is a picture of, if you participated in believer's baptism, then you died with Christ, symbolically when you were baptized, right? You died with if you died with Christ, 
what we've been studying. And six is you die to sin. Dying to sin is the equivalent of a spouse dying in a marriage. And that's what we've been reading in chapter seven. If a spouse dies in a marriage, the surviving spouse can remarry. And it's not called adultery. That's almost all of what is being talked about in those seven verses in terms of an illustration. But the significance of that is where I think it's difficult for you and I to apply to our own lives because you and I don't feel like we were bound to the law the way a Jew is bound to the law. This chapter, this chapter is very interesting because it predominantly goes from verse 7 to the end of the chapter saying why that is a legitimate statement that Paul has made. Paul has said you must leave the law. You died to it. You're not divorcing it. Divorce would be wrong in the illustration of marriage, right? You died to it, and since you died to it, it's legal and legit for you to leave law and now be a servant of Christ in the spirit, and thus your fruit can be to God. That's what he's arguing for. He's telling you the fruit of your life, the result of your life, if you've come to faith in Christ, is fruit to God. And he's saying you're not going to do it by keeping the law. Now you and I, the, the, the more I think about this, the more you and I are like, I was never really even married to the law anyways. I don't have a Jewish law thing in me. You know what you and I are in this century predominantly? We're the prodigal son. We're the antinomian son. We're the people who could give a rip about what the law says. Very different from the Jew who has lived under the law. This is such an important thing for you to get in the flow of this book, how in, in, in some ways what, what has been said really resonates with the Jew and resonates a lot less with you and I. From 7, seven forward, he talks about how good the law is, how right the law is. He's saying, I'm not doing something, I'm not saying something bad about the law. All I'm saying is that it can't save you. He's, he's convincing the Jew, leave your service and your marriage to the law. You died to it. You never felt the marriage bond. I never felt it. We are antinomians in America. We don't care about the law in America. And there is another thing in here I was going to point out. I, I think I can help you see how in our own weird way we are actually bound to this law and have been in service to it. That was one of the points that have been made in 6 and 7. If you die to it, you should no longer serve it. If you serve the law, then, then the resulting fruit of your life will be under the realm and reign of law. And you shouldn't produce a fruit that's for that. You should be producing a fruit that's for Christ. You should be producing a fruit. Your life should be resulting in what is pleasing to God and Christ. And that can't come from the law. Break away from the law. 
So this idea that a Christian must serve, I believe, is why this is important for us to understand the principle carefully. In other words, I don't... I honestly don't think, and I'd love to visit with you after church if you want to discuss this, I don't think very many of us have ever been servants to the law the way the Jew was. And so if, if we've died to service and then raised to another kind of service, it's likely that you will be raised, you, you'll come to the other side of this faith in the same kind of relationship to Christ that you were under the law. You've been very libertarian with the law like I have. This is my century. This is my culture. We're not hardcore law type people. We are in our own way. We'll get into it in a minute. But let's talk about serve and servants for a moment first. The One of the strong themes of the requirement of God's people is that they would serve. One of the great, beautiful pictures of this is in the Exodus. You guys remember the story of the Exodus? How many of you forgot all about the Exodus? It's, it's hard to forget. It is one of the huge stories in the Old Testament, the Exodus. Why were the people to leave? Why were the people supposed to Leave. Who were they going to leave? They, they were going to leave a, 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 a nation, a kingdom, a slavery. They were to leave slavery. They were to leave the Pharaoh's disuse of them. He was building his kingdom with them. They were enslaved by the Pharaoh. And when Moses comes to the Pharaoh, Exodus 6, 6 and 7, says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, quote, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This story in the Exodus is a massive type of salvation. You should picture yourself as one of these Hebrews in slavery to Pharaoh whom God hears the moaning of their crying, the burdens of their crying, which is a type of your and my burden and sin. When you are a slave to sin, you want a savior. You want salvation. If that's not why you want Christ, then you're not a Christian. These people moaning in their sins are heard by God who sends them Moses, who is a type of Christ. And there they are, moaning in their burden, and they receive this word through the prophet Moses. God says, I will bring you out from under the burdens. I will rescue you. 
I will redeem you. How did he ultimately redeem them? Let's think pay. Redeem means pay. How were the slaves of Egypt paid for? That's called the Passover. They had a Passover meal on the night they left Egypt. What was the Passover meal? It was a lamb. It had to be a perfect lamb. Lamb that they were to bring into their home a couple days before they actually had the meal. Then they were to kill the lamb. And then they were to do something with the blood of the lamb. What did they do with the blood? They put it over the doorpost of their home. And if they stayed in their home the night that that angel of death came, if they stayed in their home, would they live or die? They would live. The oldest would live. Life came to the home that was under the blood on the night of the Passover. That is a picture of salvation. That is a picture of redemption. Wrought for the people of Israel on the night of their redemption from Egypt. The one who lives, lived and was to go and serve the Lord. Moses actually went to Pharaoh multiple times and said, Thus says the Lord, let my people go, that we may serve him in the wilderness. Why were they to be redeemed from their slavery? To serve him in the wilderness. To serve the Lord. Exodus 8.20 I'm going to read you a couple of verses here. They're written on the handout. If you don't have one yet, then you can pick it up after. But this this first one I'm going to read you, Exodus 8.20. The Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning. Stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water. Say to him, thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Why are they to be redeemed? To serve the Lord. That's Exodus 8.20. The handout has quite a few other verses written on it, so I would encourage you to have a look at those ones to see how it is that the people of Israel serve the Lord in faithfulness or serve idols. But the next reference I wanted to point you to in regards to serving here is in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. So the Hebrews who were enslaved in Egypt are redeemed on the night of the Passover. Under the blood of the Lamb, they live, and the next day they begin their journey to their promised land, right? That is a picture of their leaving to their new service. Listen to this reference in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. Paul is speaking to the Thessalonian church and he's speaking about other people's knowledge of his reception by them in his being a gospel preacher. What have other people said about, about your receiving of the gospel, your hearing of the gospel? They themselves declare concerning us 
us apostles. What manner of injury we had to you, you Christians in Thessalonica, how you turned to God from idols. You see the rest of the phrase? What does it say? To serve the living and true God. Why is a Christian a Christian? Why are they redeemed? What were they saved for? To serve the living and the true God is how they said it in the letter to the Thessalonians there. Again, there's quite a few more passages and verses on serving that I have recorded in the handout for you, but I'm going to just have you look at one more in Revelation 22. Revelation 22, at the, at the end of the age, when, when we are finally through with this life and prepared to spend the rest of eternity with the Lord, listen to what that's a picture of. Listen to how that's spoken of here in this one verse. Revelation 22.3 says, And there shall be no more curse. And that's a, that's a reference to the curse of sin. Your your own individual struggle and then our struggle at large with, with sin is the curse. There should be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. That's, that's all of the redeemed. It's all of Christendom will serve him for the rest of eternity. The enslaved people of, of Egypt were redeemed, right? We were speaking about the lamb on the night of the Passover. Look at 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 speaks about a Christian's redemption. Your redemption, if, if you put your faith in Christ, if you are a Christian and you have been redeemed. Listen to how Peter writes about this very briefly. First Peter 1 Peter 1.18 says, Knowing you were not redeemed with corruptible things. You weren't paid for with corruptible things. Like silver or gold from your aimless conduct. Received by tradition from your father's but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. The Christian calling, the, the, the resurrected life, if, if you've been raised with Christ, if you are in union with Christ, your life is as a servant to the Lord Jesus. What do you think about the servant-master relationship? Is that... Does that sound distasteful to you? Do, you? do you not like the thought of being a servant to a, a master? Because this really is the, the New Testament message. The Christian is commanded to serve. It's, it's the duty of a Christian to serve. And that is the point of, of the passage that we're studying here, these these six verses end. Read with me 7, 6, please. Chapter 7 of Romans and verse 6. Chapter 7 of Romans and verse 6. 
says we've been delivered from the law. Having died to what we were held by. That's where that illustration of marriage comes in. So that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Service of the Christian not rendered not by the old of the letter. And this is the this is a this is where the fork in the road comes for all men. It's not by the old of the letter, but it is by the new of the spirit. Now Romans three 21 to 25 is, just, just so you remember, Romans 3, 21 to 25 is where you first understood how, how does salvation from sin happen? Your, your propitiation, your redemption, your justification is in Romans 3, 21 to 25. Justified. When you believed in Christ, you were justified. You were saved. In other words, God isn't going to measure your worthiness for salvation in this lifetime and decide if you're saved at the end of the age. That's the reason I'm making sure you remember that. Romans 3, 21 to 25 is saying, when you believed in the Christ, you were saved, you were redeemed. This, this issue of serving by the Spirit is something that a believer is being told to do. It's important that you understand the order of, of, of what we're talking about here. The believer has a master, and he's been told to follow the master. You've been justified freely by his grace, is what it said there in Romans 3. Justification means you have been righteousified. You wear the righteousness of Christ. Having been made righteous, you serve. To produce a fruit. Romans 6 4, Romans 6 4, perfect cross reference saying what we're saying here. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism unto death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. There is a new way of living your life, it is service to God and Christ. There's a newness to the life of a Christian. The oldness of the letter is where you cannot walk and serve. And, and like I said, this is the main emphasis of what how, how Romans 7 finishes. You cannot walk and live according to the letter. Otherwise, you do not have a fruit to God. That is the point of the warning. Leviticus 18.5 is a great verse where we, we get a, 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 a small taste of what is meant in the scripture by serving according to the letter. Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. <coughs> The letter commands service. Now where it gets tricky, and, and we're going to be working on this later, but where this gets tricky 
is as, as we think honestly about what the scripture is saying here, you're going to be thinking, well, if I, if I don't serve the letter, then I don't have to do what the letter says. I don't have to obey the letter. And, and when we realize, I don't have to obey the letter, that means we can do whatever we want. We can commit adultery. We can lie. We can steal. We can murder. We can blaspheme. If I don't have to obey the letter, then I can do these things. And this is the ditch that people fall. Most people don't do that. They've got some really interesting guardrails in, in their minds. They're like, well... I know it can't mean I can blaspheme without getting in trouble with God. I, I, I know it can't mean that, but I can surely do just about anything else I want. That's, that, 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 that's where the ditch is. Christians have a hard time under, well, I've, I've been completely released from the law. I'm not, I'm not supposed to walk according to the letter, so I'm going to just can do whatever as long as I don't blaspheme and murder. Where is the path? Where is the road? How do you know where it is you're supposed to walk and live as a Christian? Because should, should, should we continue to sin that grace might abound? No, may it never be, is what the word is told to us. The letter commands service, for example, Colossians 2.21, where, where Paul is warning Christians. He's telling them, this is what the law does. This is what it says. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. That was an example of what we're talking about in Colossians 2. Don't touch. Don't touch what? What's the Jewish understanding when, when the Jew is thinking about law and do not touch? What was it? What, what can't he touch? A dead animal would make him unclean. A woman in her impurity is, is unclean and she needs to be separate from her home. Right? I mean, that's you and I don't deal with that in any way. But that is the Jews' idea of don't touch, don't do, and they hold rigidly to that because they need to remain clean. They also need to remain Jewish. Don't eat pork. If, if, if you eat pork, you become unclean. Now, the apostles made all of the food laws null. In Peter's vision in the book of Acts, he was told to rise and eat. And remember what he said? Lord, never eaten something to make me unclean. Many things in the sea they couldn't eat. It would make them unclean. Romans 6, 7, and 8. Do not hit you and I the way it hit the Jew. But let me try to help you understand how it is that your typical unbeliever serves the letter in his flesh, in his unbelief. This is how the unbeliever serves the letter. <clears throat> because... I just don't think we understand it until it's explained to us. All men, all men were serving the letter before they came to Christ. All men were. That is the implication of our passage here. But the irreligious, and, and this is 
your average American, and this is our culture, is the irreligious and the godless. How, how, how do people like that serve the letter? Romans 2.14 spoke about him for a moment. Romans 2.14 and 15 speak about this. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. You guys understand what that means? It means that everybody at some level has a sense of right and wrong and there's a rule in their mind and on their heart and that's why they do what they do and that's why they don't do what they don't do. We don't steal. We don't murder. There are certain rules written on the hearts. In Romans 2.14 said they are law to themselves. Verse 15 goes on to say, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing them. Have you ever had your mind kind of debating whether it was legit or not legit? I'm going to do it anyways. And then your mind is saying, well, you better not because you're going to be guilty if you do it or, or vice versa. You can have these little debates in your conscience. And this is what Romans 2.15 is speaking about. The conscience is either defending your position or attacking your position. And this is the law that you and I as non-Jews have followed or rebelled against. This is the law that condemns anybody who's not found in Christ. So service to the letter is not simply your fear and obedience to it. Service to the law is not necessarily your service to or your obedience to it. I'm going to keep explaining to you what I mean by that. When, when the anti-rule person, when the antinomian American feels the do pressure on him. I got to do this. When I was a kid, I, I felt like I had to be to class on time when I went to school. For a season of time, I, I felt it was important that I obeyed the speed limits. There was some do pressure on my, on my and, and so I, I did. There, there were things that were right for me to, to do. Sometimes you decide to break the rule. You don't do it. You change, you change your mind. How does that happen? Something happens in your mind, something like this. Well, why, why should I? Because nobody else does. Why, why should I obey the speed limit? I mean, uh, I'm going to be the slowest one. And, and don't, don't hear me saying, I, I don't think speed laws are anything at all like the Ten Commandments. I'm not trying to say that to you. What I'm trying to explain to you right now is how does your conscience work? At one point in your life, your conscience can feel a little bit of pressure about things. And how do you get out from under the pressure? You debate it. You discuss it. You convince your conscience that it was kind of wrongly aroused. And you defeat your conscience. You overcome it. Don't you? That's... That's how you serve the law. 
That's how you, you feel the pressure of it. What do you say to it? What do you reply to it? Well, you, 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 you make your own heart comfortable with plan B by rationalizing your disobedience. You actually interact with it, don't you? You interact with the law to commit adultery or to steal or even to murder. How many women have an abortion thinking, I think today's the day I'm going to kill my unborn child. Not very many women approach it that way. Number one, our culture has taught women to think it's not a, a, an unborn person. Our culture has taught them and, and helped them justify doing that. We've changed definitions. Do you see how that's serving the law? You see, if, if unbelievers said, well, it is a life, it's a person, then, then, then what percentage of those people can get uh, an, an abortion with no restraint? The, the numbers go down drastically because none of us wants to be guilty of murder. We know murder is a horrible, horrible thing to do, even if we're not a Christian. So do you see how you serve the law? You feel the pressure of it. You feel it trying to redirect you. You interact with it and you, and you move it back to where you want it to go. So this is how we, as, as rebels and antinomians, interact with the law. This is how we serve the law. It's not like we don't have it and don't know it. We learn how to finagle it and how to make it work for us. Another thing we we do, another way that we serve the law is antinomians as, uh, as non-Jews. And I, I'm sure the Jews served it in this way as well. Because sometimes by serving the law, it makes you look good. simple example might be uh, tithing. Come into church with a nice big envelope in your pocket, a few people looking, and you kind of make sure it makes a noise when it hits the bottom of the box. And, and, and what is the point of serving the law in that way? It kind of casts a nice light on the person who's being a good, generous person to his congregation. You, you serve it, but really you're serving yourself. It's like, this, this is all going to come back on me. This, this makes me... So we can serve the law. It's serving us back. It's making us look good. This is another way that, that people... Serve it. And so what we find is that there are a lot of men and women who serve the law in an incredibly self-serving way, in a self-serving way. We're enslaved by the law, but in a self-serving way. We, we interact with the law and we speak back to the law and we work with our conscience in a, in a self-serving way. What we're studying here. What we've been studying is that if you died with Christ and if you were raised with Christ, you're his. You are a servant of Christ. The, the bond between you and the law is now broken. There is no bond between the believer and the law. There is a new legal marriage between the believer and Christ and he has a new master. And we don't serve according to the letter. In other words, if you are a Christian, if you've been brought together with Christ as a Christian and your conscience bothers you 
about something you've been thinking about doing or not doing. Think, oh, I'm not going to go to church this week. I don't really want to go help, you know, so-and-so this week. There's something on your conscience. How do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? We do not deal with these things according to the letter. What the passage is meaning to teach the Christian is, is how you deal with this is according to the Spirit. We don't deal with this like the oldness of the letter, and, and we don't get back to the Spirit until chapter 8. So we're going to have to wait a little while before we get all the way to how do you actually deal with these things? You're a person who has been bound to Christ. If, if you're a believer who has left sin, repented of your sin, out of fear of condemnation and eternal death, and you've seen the beauty and the glory of hope offered to us in Christ, then you are His. You have been made His to serve. The word serve is slave. It is slave. For His slaves. The Lord wants us to, to know that you must break that bond with the law because the law can't make you righteous. How does, how does he put it in, in, in Romans 3, right around verse 20, 18, 20? No one, no one will be justified by works of the law. No one can be made righteous by works of the law. You are so bankrupt of righteousness, it must be 100% imported to you. Or you have no hope of eternal life. But if you have received eternal life because of the righteousness of Christ, you are His. Doulos. You are His servant. And when... The king says to his servant, Hey, I'd like you to go help Mike change a tire on his truck. And you say, I don't really want to. It's just wet and cold out there. And Mike's a jerk. And he's got a really lousy jack for his truck. It's just going to be, a, I, I just don't want to. Have you ever felt your heart complaining to the Lord when the Lord is stirring you to serve Him? Have you ever felt your heart just saying, I don't want to? I have. I have a heart like that. This, this passage is here to tell you that you have been raised a servant. And that's how you live your Christian life. You are not yours. You are not saved for you. If you're not saved, you must leave the service of sin. You must leave the path that is on a, a fast track to hell. You must leave that and repent of sin that would destroy you forever. Turn to the good master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shed his blood to redeem you. You must turn to him. And cling to him for eternal life because he is your only source of righteousness. And happily surrender yourself as his servant. You must do that. We will probably in the next two or three weeks get to 
the Spirit. How do you walk in the Spirit? It's treated very mystically by a lot of people. And I I really want to help you understand how it is that you live and walk this Christian life. It cannot be according to the letter, chiefly because the letter can't save you, and only Christ can save you. It must be to Christ, who is the Spirit. That's, That's part of the secret. Who is the Spirit? Christ is the Spirit. God is the Spirit. Your service is to the person of God in Christ. It's not to the letter. That's who you serve. But you don't sass. You do not backtalk. You're king. And and if you've been saved, you wouldn't want to anyways. He's so good. He's so rich and he's so kind to us. When the king says, hey, take out the trash. Awesome. I'm going to take out the trash for the king. I'm the king's. I'm in his kingdom. He's given me eternal life. I'd rather be a doorman in the house of the king than a rich man. There's a sermon on hell, right? Anything. God, give me any job. 